Hello everyone, welcome to the Unseen Beings podcast where we explore what it means to be human in a more than human world. My name is Eric Jampa Anderson and I am your host and the author of Unseen Beings, How We Forgot the World is More Than Human, which comes out a month from today on May 30th and it's currently available for pre-order everywhere. This book really explores how we came to construct a human-centered world, how we came to perceive ourselves, human beings, as the only entities on this planet that have any kind of intrinsic value, how we came to perceive ourselves as the only actors on our planetary stage, with everyone else reduced to background scenery and props and resources. Indeed, as the title suggests, it's an exploration of how we forgot the world is more than human. I argue that the very notion of a fundamental split between human culture and non-human nature is simply a kind of myth, a story that we've told ourselves. And indeed, not everyone has told that story. It comes from a very specific set of cultural and historical circumstances, specifically in the Mediterranean world and then more broadly in Europe. And it was spread across the world, not as a consequence of its brilliance or some kind of organic diffusion, but specifically because it was forced upon everyone else. It ended up becoming the basis for all of our modern conversations regarding the climate, the environment, non-human beings, and so on, not because it was most true or most compelling, but simply because those who believed it also took it upon themselves to dominate the entirety of the known world. And if you ask me, I don't think that's a coincidence. Our current planetary crisis in the bowels of the so-called Anthropocene didn't come about as a function of the specific approaches that we took in our industrial endeavors. It's not about specific substances that we use or exploit. It's about the underlying philosophy, the underlying worldview that led us into these profoundly destructive and exploitative practices. Certain human institutions, namely European colonial powers and later transnational corporations, have been systematically altering the climate, changing our world for at least 500 years. Or at least the most devastating and wide-reaching consequences have occurred during this time. But these ambitions didn't arise overnight, and while we may think of them in largely political terms, they had fundamental philosophical underpinnings that were far more ancient. In Unseen Beings, I try to flesh some of this out, identifying the core philosophical theories and stories that lie at the heart of our worldview of domination. The worldviews that led us to commit genocide, femicide, ecocide, the enslavement of other human beings, the mass exploitation of non-human beings, the stories that birthed the Anthropocene. Now, the importance of investigations like this should be self-evident. We are facing a number of incredibly profoundly existentially perilous crises. Global warming, extreme weather events, widespread pollution and toxicity, the sixth mass extinction on this planet caused by human activities and institutions. Things are not looking great, either for humans or non-humans, and we need to do a lot more than just cover up symptoms and make minor adjustments in certain industrial practices. We need to fundamentally revision, revise, and reevaluate our approach to the more-than-human world. We need to reevaluate what it means to be human. But so far, our conversations have been about sustainability, how to sustain the world that we have created for as long as possible. But when we stop and ask ourselves, 
what is it that we're trying to sustain, we may end up realizing that we don't really like the answer because ultimately what we're seeking to do is sustain exploitation for as long as possible, specifically for the purpose of perpetuating human progress and human domination over the entire planet. Of course, it's worth pointing out that one of the great failings of the so-called Anthropocene narrative is that it collapses the entirety of humanity into a single undifferentiated Anthropos, the human as the star of the story who is collectively responsible for all of the environmental destruction that has occurred. At the same time, there's a tendency to collapse the entire other-than-human world into a single undifferentiated nature. And both of these ideas are quite ludicrous. There is no fundamental distinction between human culture and non-human nature. Human cultures have always been profoundly influenced by the non-human world, and so-called nature has always included and been impacted by human behaviors. And it's certainly not the case that all humans perceived what we call nature as an inert storehouse of exploitable resources. For the vast majority of our human history, most human societies have perceived our world as being populated by a vast assortment of diverse kinds of persons. Some of them human, but most of them non-human. Some seen, many unseen. These non-modern, pre-modern, and non-Western worldviews aren't just quaint cultural ideas. They're not simply stories in a pejorative sense. They're alternate approaches to cosmology, to what we call ecology, to our understanding of the world. And of course, after having attempted to wipe them off of the face of the earth along with the peoples that maintained them, we can't exactly say that modern Euro-American societies are deserving of these worldviews and cosmologies. They are in many ways fundamentally antithetical to the world that we've created, which is precisely why there was such a strong effort to eliminate them. Which is why simply appropriating traditional beliefs or practices, especially in a capitalist context, is both inappropriate and fundamentally unuseful. Rather than becoming infatuated with the hand, we need to pay attention to where it's pointing. This reminds me of a documentary I saw a little while ago called The Truffle Hunters, uh, which follows a set of truffle hunters and their dogs in northern Italy, in Piemonte. And in it, there's this older man who has been quite prolific in his pursuit of truffles throughout his life. He knows all of the good places in his region. And he's older, he has no children, no one to pass along his knowledge to. So there's another truffle hunter with far more um, sort of uh, capitalistic motives, let's say, who approaches him and asks him to show him where the good spots are. And the old man says, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. What you need to do is go and get a good dog or even a not so good dog and take them out yourself and go explore. I'll go out with you so that we can look together, but I'm not going to just tell you where the good spots are. This strikes me as a very potent metaphor for our engagement with traditional systems of knowledge that we don't own, but which are nevertheless profoundly valuable and important for us to engage with. We don't need to steal other people's stories. We need to graciously accept whatever advice they may offer in helping us find our own. What we really need is recovery, a recovery of what it means to be human in a more than human world. This brings me to the main topic for this podcast, recovery, escape, and consolation. 
In his essay on fairy stories, J.R.R. Tolkien describes recovery, escape, and consolation as the three fundamental functions of a good fairy story. A fairy story itself being a most potent kind of myth for engendering an experience of enchantment. Enchantment is the natural sense of awe and wonder that arises when we encounter the world around us on its own terms, when we enter into relationship with another, when we encounter other minds and other beings, whether it be a lover or a non-human being like an animal or a plant or something else entirely. Falling in love can engender enchantment, as can spiritual practice and religious rituals, as can encountering a non-human animal, looking them into the eyes and recognizing their personhood. But enchantment can also be engendered through art, through music, through literature, through stories. But enchantment can't be contrived or coerced. We can prepare the ground for it, but we can't force it to grow. It's ultimately a way of seeing or experiencing the world, and we often catch glimpses of it, but it can be very difficult to sustain. The very desire to cling to enchantment, to claim it and appropriate it, is itself famously perilous. Tolkien reminds us that if we try to seize some of the fairy gold and bring it back to the primary world, we may find that it withers away into dried and crumpled leaves. But enchantment can change our lives in really substantial ways and fundamentally alter the way that we approach the world around us and perceive our place within it. This is precisely through the process of recovery, escape, and consolation. He writes, quote, Recovery, which includes return and renewal of health, is a regaining, regaining of a clear view. I do not say seeing things as they are and involve myself with the philosophers, though I might venture to say seeing things as we are or were meant to see them, as things apart from ourselves. We need, in any case, to clean our windows so that the things seen clearly may be freed from the drab blur of triteness or familiarity, from possessiveness. Of all faces, those of our familiars are the ones both most difficult to play fantastic tricks with and most difficult really to see with fresh attention, perceiving their likeness and unlikeness, that they are faces and yet unique faces. This triteness is really the penalty of appropriation. The things that are trite or, in a bad sense, familiar, are the things that we have appropriated, legally or mentally. We say we know them. They have become like the things which once attracted us by their glitter or their color or their shape, and we laid hands on them, and then locked them in our hoard, acquired them, and acquiring ceased to look at them. What Tolkien speaks to here is profoundly relevant to our current existential and environmental crisis. Our appropriation and exploitation of non-human beings and non-human environments has gone hand in hand with our disenchantment, having appropriated these beings and reduced them to mere commodities and resources. We have forgotten their vitality and their own magic. We've stripped them of the capacity to enchant us, to pull us into relational experiences, We've obliterated or attempted to obliterate our capacity to feel love for these beings. And I would argue this is incredibly important. We're not going to change our behaviors simply because we know it's the right thing to do. We need to be authentically compelled to care, not just for our own human futures, but for the other beings that are caught up in our exploitative webs. 
And indeed, stories have a tremendous capacity to clean out our windows, to give us a fresh view of things. As Ursula K. Le Guin once said, what fantasy can do that the realistic novel generally cannot do is include the non-human as essential. If you really think about it, the majority of our most serious and important stories are strictly anthropocentric. They are wholly human-centered stories. While non-humans once played a starring role in all of our most important myths, today they're very much pushed into the background. This undoubtedly plays a significant role in our establishment of social, legal, and political paradigms. I would argue that if we want to see real significant change, then in addition to more pragmatic measures, we need to start telling different stories. We need to allow ourselves to once again become enchanted by the natural world and all of the many different kinds of beings that inhabit it. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that we need to project supernatural creatures and gods and demons and so on onto the natural world. As Tolkien writes, quote, fairy stories deal largely, or the better ones, mainly, with simple or fundamental things, untouched by fantasy. But these simplicities are made all the more luminous by their setting. For the storymaker who allows himself to be free with nature can be her lover, not her slave. And I would add, or her master, but that's just me. He goes on to say, it was in fairy stories that I first divined the potency of the words and the wonder of the things, such as stone and wood and iron, tree and grass, house and fire, bread and wine. Many readers of Tolkien's works have noted that some of the most enchanting elements of his stories are themselves entirely non-magical. Landscapes become, the landscape itself becomes a domain of enchantment and a character in and of itself, an agent in the story as opposed to just a background setting. This process of re-enchantment and recovery which can arise through engagement with these kinds of stories, as well as through many other means, can itself facilitate a kind of escape. This is the escapism that Tolkien speaks of in a very positive light as a fundamental function of fantasy, fairy stories, and many forms of myth. But this isn't escape from the real world. This is escape from the prison cells that we've placed ourselves into. It's escape from the ontological shackles that we've fixed to ourselves in order to dominate the entire world. Tolkien writes, quote, Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and go home? Or if, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls? The world outside has not become less real because the prisoner cannot see it. In using escape in this way, the critics have chosen the wrong word, and what's more, they are confusing, not always by sincere error, the escape of the prisoner with the flight of the deserter. Just so a party spokesman might have labeled departure from the misery of the Führers or any other Reich, and even criticism of it, as treachery. In Tolkien's view, the kind of escape afforded by an experience of enchantment is not an escape from reality, but an escape from morbid delusion. An escape from an experience of reality which is entirely contrived and instrumentalist, and out of step with the real nature of things, or at the very least, with the way that we are meant to see the world. 
he speaks directly to the desire to escape modernity, the romanticization of more archaic modes of living, which many critics are very critical of, but he claims that this is really quite justifiable. He writes, quote, For it is after all possible for a rational man, after reflection, quite unconnected with fairy story or romance, to arrive at the condemnation, implicit at least in the mere silence of escapist literature, of progressive things like factories or the machine guns and bombs that appear to be their most natural and inevitable, dare we say, inexorable products. But Tolkien notes that there are many things from which we seek to escape. There is hunger, thirst, poverty, pain, sorrow, injustice, and death itself. Indeed, the desire to escape from death is one of the most perilous and prominent desires that lie at the heart of many of our mythic and religious traditions around the world. Though he reminds us that, quote, few lessons are taught more clearly in them than the burden of that kind of immortality, or rather endless serial living, to which the fugitive would fly. This is, of course, also quite relevant in a world in which we are actively pursuing extreme longevity, and it may actually be a possibility in this century, along with a burning and partially uninhabitable world. But there are other desires and wishes that lie at the heart of fairy stories. Tolkien says, quote, There are profounder wishes, such as the desire to converse with other living things, on this desire, as ancient as the fall, is largely founded the talking of beasts and creatures and fairy tales, and especially the magical understanding of their proper speech. This is the root, and not the confusion, attributed to the minds of men of the unrecorded past, an alleged absence of the sense of separation of ourselves from beasts. A vivid sense of that separation is very ancient, but also a sense that it was a severance. A strange fate and a guilt lies on us. Other creatures are like other realms with which man has broken off relations and sees now only from the outside at a distance, being at war with them or on the terms of an uneasy armistice. There are a few men who are privileged to travel abroad a little. Others must be content with travelers' tales. The escape that's offered by new ways of thinking and imagining our world is an escape from the alienation of anthropocentrism the alienation of humanity from nature, this sense of a fundamental sundering between these two independent spheres of reality. In truth, they were never separate to begin with. It's simply a consequence of our own philosophical worldviews and our ways of living that we've come to imagine a separation to exist. Experiences of enchantment are temporary transgressions of that separation, a temporary experience of true connectedness, of relationship, a witnessing of that fundamental natural spark of magic that's present in all living beings. We do indeed need to escape from the world that we've created. We need to find a way to escape from the Anthropocene and from the worldviews that gave rise to the Anthropocene. But we're not going to do that by running away to Mars. And we're also probably not going to do that in some massive universal revolution. This is a very personal and intimate process. But by changing our way of seeing and by telling new stories and sharing those with one another, we can create new life in the cracks of our crumbling world. I believe that this is in line with what Tolkien refers to as consolation. The consolation of a fairy story is the happy ending. 
It's the happy ending that arises just when things looked like they weren't going to be resolved. Just when hope seemed to be entirely lost, there's the sudden joyous turn. What he says, quote, a fleeting glimpse of joy, joy beyond the walls of the world, poignant as grief. Tolkien refers to this as a eucatastrophe, or the good catastrophe. And a eucatastrophe by its nature is not expected. Indeed, we have no idea if humanity is going to outlive this century. We don't know. There is a non-zero percent chance that humans ourselves will go extinct in this century. Nevertheless, the countless other species that will fall with us, and indeed because of us. We don't know if there will be a happy ending, but that is indeed the point. At the end of the day, if that's what we're looking for, then we're going to be sorely disappointed. We cannot change our world as a means to an end. Doing so will be entirely ineffectual because we simply will not actually change. We have to feel authentically compelled to change. We need to be compelled and drawn into a new way of living. That itself is the process of cultivating a life worth living. Enchantment itself is the consolation. Until next time, thanks for listening. Please subscribe, and if you want to pre-order my book, Unseen Beings, How We Forgot the World is More Than Human, you can do so at basically any book retailer. To find a list and more information, please visit www.unseen-beings.com, or you can find more information at ericjampa.com. Also, if you want to support this podcast and my other projects, please check out my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash ericjampa, where you can join for as little as three pounds a month. And a big thank you to my current Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. Until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon.